Welcome to the Idol Book Club for February 2016. I am Chris Remo. I'm Sarah Argadale. And this month, we are discussing the first book in this second season, I suppose, of the Idol Book Club. It is Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff. It is a sort of bifurcated tale of an essentially uh, successful marriage, uh, the first half of which is told largely from the husband's perspective, Lotto Satterwhite, and the second half of which is told from the perspective of his wife, Matilde. Um, this is a book that many people have compared to Gone Girl for that kind of uh, pull the rug out from under you revelation about what's going on in the other side of a marriage. And that was not the focus of the uh, the uh, sort of premise of the book from the beginning. And uh, Sarah, you had read this book already um, relatively recently, I guess. And you chose it as there you proposed it as the first book uh, of our new series of this show. Why did you do that? Um, well, I picked it because it was Obama's best book of 2015. <laughs> was that, was that no, I didn't learn that until many weeks after I, I had actually read it yeah. myself. But yes, apparently uh, that is a question that the president gets asked. And in 2015, Obama said it was Fates and Furies. Yeah. So that that is... Maybe that will juice our listener numbers. <laughs> That's just going to be my the defense that I mount for this book. <laughs> Obama I mean, liked it. said so. so Thanks, Obama. Know. Thanks, Obama. Yeah. No, I picked it because it was a more recent work of fiction that I was familiar with and generally had received pretty positive reviews and it was something that I wanted <clears throat> and I mentioned this on the zero episode that we had but I wanted you to read it um just so that we could talk about it because I think that there are lots of really interesting elements to talk about in this book which feeds into my overall opinion of it which is that this book contains very interesting elements very interesting examinations of a relationship especially a uh in particular a a very long relationship between two fully realized human beings and i think it transcends the flaws of the novel or at least in my opinion sure. i i have no idea what you actually think mm -hmm. of this book yeah i am i'm mixed on the book for sure I like the book on balance. I'm positive on the book on balance. I think I was most positive on the book for its middle third. In other words, the conclusion of Lotto's story mm -hmm. flowing into the introduction of Matilde's story. Mm -hmm. I think when the when the book first chose changed perspective, it kind of blew my mind. And that lasted for a while. And I really appreciated that. So the elements of the book about which I was positive the ways in which this relationship um, is sort of predicated on what these two people don't know about one another, or mainly really what Lotto doesn't know about Matilde. Well, but her, but unlike Gone Girl, how that sense of mystery or withholding about her life is not malicious, but is sort of even in its components that have a sinister aspect are still born out of a larger generosity. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And I don't know if I've seen a story like that, at least not one that puts the man and woman into those particular roles. I don't know. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. 
Lancelot is, I think, not only ignorant of the goings on in Matilde's life, but in general, is just a ignorant human being in all aspects of his life. And that's an element of this book that I found to be really great. And I think that was something that frustrated you, especially from the beginning. Um, I remember... It wasn't so much from the beginning. I, I kind of... My lowest point with this book was lo- the rise of of Lotto's meteoric rise. And that was my favorite oh, part man, of really? it. Oh, really? Yeah, that's what I'm really excited to talk about. Oh, uh, interesting. When you were reading this book and you were saying initially that you were having a, har- a hard time getting through the first couple of chapters because you found the Lotto character. It wasn't the first couple of chapters. It was like deep into Lotto's story when he was really becoming successful. Okay. So that that section of the book that you struggled with. And I anecdotally, I've noticed just reading the forum thread for this book that that seems to be a common criticism that people have. And And again, this is all anecdotal, but I've also noticed that it's mostly men who have raised this issue with the Lotto character having this... Com- stupidly easy existence where from his birth all of the women in his life have referred to him as this golden child the book compares him to the sun pretty frequently everyone's attention is an affection is always inexplicably drawn to this man and for no real reason right um there's nothing He's not particularly described as a very attractive person. He's tall and he has striking. I mean, he's, he's constantly referred to as sort of magnetic or compelling. In right. Some way. But uh, it's yeah. it's questionable, like what exactly about right. him? Like nothing that sure. he does ever feels earned. He's just constantly told that he's important. And then he just. And then eventually he pro- is proven to be that. Right. Well. I think I would say having read the entire book, I think that that is still true of him. It's true that Matilde revises his works extensively, but when she tries to write her own fiction, it's sort of deemed unremarkable. Her skills as an editor, not as a creator. And but I don't think that I think that a strong case made that his ideas are in fact actually incredible. I don't I don't agree. I think that having Matilde be his editor and arguably the reason why his plays achieve the success that they do. And then also having this example where when Matilde tries to do it herself, she fails. I I don't think that that proves that Lotto actually has a talent. I think that further reinforces this unearned success that this man is just given by life. I I don't think that it is unintentional that the name of this book is called Fates and Furies and it's divided into mm-hmm. these two sections and Lotto has this entire worldview where everything that happens to him is essentially like his fate. There's nothing that he has to actively do because he is just going to have this golden existence, whereas Matilde, in a complete contrast to that, works so hard to have anything happen to her. And when she tries to independently take these actions, not through her husband, but on her own, and fails, I think that that, again, reinforces the fact that this man 
really is kind of this golden person who is just going to be successful no matter what. And I absolutely love that because I think that that as, as a woman, I think that is a very understandable frustration that a lot of women have towards men who just seem to be supernaturally anointed. Right. And it's just, Mm -hmm. and it does, it never feels justified. And I think it's really fascinating that a, a lot of men who, again, all anecdotal, but it's, it's really interesting to me that men read this and, and are just frustrated by this character. But to me, this character is completely honest to a certain. So do you not think that Matilda herself believes Lotto to be exceptionally talented? Because I, I think that that's in the text. I think that the text explicitly make, like, I describes th- her admiration for her husband. Yes. It, not just as a person individually, but also as an artistic talent who needs some help. But I, I think the book is strongly suggesting that he does, in fact, have some artistic spark that she is helping sort of kindle. Um, I'm sure that he, he and, does and I, have. I react. I think the thing I react badly to is the idea that that is what artistic success is. And I feel that even if the book is. Part of it is because I don't think a playwright ever can become a celebrity in the way that he does in this book. Well, to be I think fair, that is like outrageous. That is and all so happening that, in what the nineties. I guess that's true. I mean, maybe maybe I'm maybe or I'm speaking for a, for a different era than than because he's. I think he's a teenager in in what the eighties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He so is. yeah, yeah. I I think that my reaction to this the sort of artistic success component of it is. Born out of the fact that I feel like the book has the book itself is wrapped up in ideas in artistic grandeur that I'm not sure I buy into. And and so w- when I when I react that way to Lotto's fictional success, it's being um, it is because well, not not because entirely. I mean, you're right. I think you're totally right in what you say that part of it. Part of it is just reacting to this oblivious guy. Right. And maybe maybe my own obliviousness like is is being uh called to four like that that's i'm sure that 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 there is a component of that definitely but then there's on another track there's the way the book deals with i think art that i found to be just sort of disingenuous like there's uh maybe not though i could be wrong i could be wrong and so let me let me present my case and let me see what you think about it right so there's the character of phoebe delmar who is this critic who um is a recurring kind of force or like background voice in the book, who's who savages every one of Lotto's plays, much to Lotto's consternation. And uh, at a certain point in Matilde's story, she meets Phoebe Delmar without realizing this is who this person is, you know, unbeknownst to her. They really hit it off. These women like each other a lot. Matilde learns the identity of this person and is like incredibly frustrated that this person she likes a lot is also this person who's been this sort of gadful, you know, this like horsefly on their what what is the word i'm looking for this annoying presence in their lives and uh phoebe delmar gives this sort of speech that to me feels like the it feels like the authorial voice of the book talking it's on page 342 in the uh paperback edition hardcover i'm sorry the hardcover edition i said the exact opposite thing that i meant and um oh no i didn't write it Oh, no, I did write it down. Yes. So Phoebe Delmar says, 
Uh, effectively, he has great American artistitis, ever bigger, ever louder, jostling for the highest perch in the hegemony. You don't think that's some sort of sickness that befalls men when they try to do art in this country? Tell me, why did Lotto write a war play? Because works about war always trump works about emotions, even if the smaller, more domestic plays are better written, smarter, more interesting. The war stories are the ones that get the prizes, but your husband's voice is clearly is strongest when he speaks most quietly and clearly. And that to me reads like a very didactic passage that is coming from the hand of the author of the book. I could be wrong about that, but that feels like a position that is that is a reasonable position if stated like a bit heavy handedly. But the thing that makes the combination of these things great for me is the fact that that is actually how this book kind of feels to me. The usage of the Greek chorus motif, the usage of the larger than life characters who have these sort of grand plotted schemes where increasingly towards the end of the book, essentially everybody in the novel is some kind of amazing lifelong schemer who somehow like everybody just has a hidden file that like dramatically causes the downfall of someone else. Like it becomes so bloated to me that this book feels to me falling prey to the exact thing that Lancelot is being castigated for by Phoebe Delmar, which is that you can't, it, it's not enough to have it just be the story of people. It has to be a, like a grand, like it, she mentions war epics, things like that, but like this, the, the sort of evocation of, of Greek myth and tragic fates feels to me like that same trap. I, I, and the the recurring um, bracketed Greek chorus motif really grated on me a lot. That was by far my least favorite thing about the book. It felt very affected and very self-important, as though the author, in an attempt to shore up like a concern that the book might not be weighty enough, had to insert elements that call attention to that there is, in fact, something bigger going on, as though we couldn't understand that ourselves as readers. And that's obvious. This is obviously a matter of opinion. It was just my reaction, but that is the, those are the, the, that total, that whole thing is what the components of the book that left a bad taste in my mouth. They were all linked together into that. And I, it. Well, I want to talk about the references in this book oh, sure. later, but okay. t- to your point, I see what you're saying. And in my mind, that feels intentional on the author's part, that there is this character who criticizes most of Lotto's plays, except for there's one play that she mm-hmm. his, she his final play is it okay yeah. that she actually gives she a good loves, yeah. review and she has this speech about bombastic emotions, kind of overshadowing quieter domestic dramas, mm-hmm. and then this book again divided into two parts where the first part fates is the quieter domestic drama. And then the second part, which has is from the perspective of the woman is the bombastic emotional story. And to me that feels incredibly intentional again, feeding back into this idea of Lotto being an anointed person and Mathilde arguably actually being having the actual drive to be successful, but because she is not anointed in the same way that he is, she just is not fated mm-hmm. to that same success. And I think that Lauren Graf inserts that character knowing exactly what she's doing. Okay. Well, that that's, 
I mean, I, I buy that. So then, so then what is she doing? Like, what is the, to what end is like, I I'll, I'll buy that. That's all intentional. So I think just demonstrating that? that men and women are capable of main, of having both of those emotions that men are completely capable of being these passive creatures and that women are just as capable of being this barely contained Mm -hmm. anger that Matilde is. And I don't know. I don't think. So you think that you think that the Phoebe Delmar character is not a surrogate for Lauren Groff. Maybe, but I, I, I don't think that it is quite as easy as, Lauren Groff inserting this critic who is like shaking her fist at all of these great male authors and saying, Oh, mm-hmm, Phil sure. Roth gets all this attention. Whereas women who write these quieter stories are not getting this, the same attention. Mm-hmm. And then like, and then Lauren Groff completely being unaware of the fact that she in fact has, I'm not saying it's, it's necessarily that she's unaware. Like, I, I don't think she's a naive person. The, I just, it just didn't quite work to me, work for me in concert. Like, I think you, you pointing that out, I think is, is convincing. And I think you're right. And I think that this book is probably better read as in fact, two different books in two different genres. Like, I think it originally was meant to be two different books. I I learned that today and that's, I had no idea. And that's Mm -hmm. quite fascinating. Yeah. When Lauren Groff was writing this, it, it, they started as completely separate novels. And then over a several year period, she combined them into, what it currently is and it's unclear to me what were the separate parts i don't think it's as well, it's simp- funny because they would totally as cur- as is currently the two halves of the book would not stand alone right i don't think it's as simple as i'm sure it's not the lotto section was one book and that matilde was another book but yes it it i think the fact that this book originally started off as two contributes to some of the issues in it although you the point the thing that the argument you made though i think actually makes me a lot more charitable to the way the two different books feel in tone like i like i i think that's that 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 actually essentially works the thing that still doesn't work for me honestly and i know that it sounds petty but it's the greek chorus thing that muddies the waters to me and yeah. makes the whole thing feel it i I, re- I really honestly feel it undermines the books i know some people liked it a lot and that's totally fine like that is I get it, but to me, it 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 makes the book feel like patronizing and didactic in a way that doesn't actually bolster any larger point it's making. Yeah, to, to me, there are so in addition to the Greek chorus, there are just lots of references to Greek and medieval and Shakespearean stories. Um, I was glancing through the end of the book where there's that the passage about how Matilde herself attempted to have a writing career mm-hmm. that she was unsuccessful right. at and the names of the novels that she wrote were Alizon, Iran, and Bamolokas. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing all those Greek <laughs> okay. words. So who are those people or things or so, cuz I have no idea. But there was a very patronizing little comment from right, the about it being, being sly but not so subtle. Like right. okay, book. I can So like, I I looked it made this me up. not want to look them up because I Well, I did. Yeah. No, it's good that you did. You had the less petty reaction. Um clearly. <laughs> so according to Wikipedia, those three characters are common in Greek comedies and they represent different emotions. So 
Alazon is a braggart character. Iran is the one who generally brings down the braggart by convincing them of something. And then Bamulokas is, <laughs> I'm, I'm really sorry it if bumps, I'm saying yeah. that wrong, is generally the buffoon. Mm-hmm. And so th- there it is. That's, that's the, the reference. And sure. people who have studied, um, ancient greek stories will know that just in the way that people who are very familiar with shakespeare will probably get a lot of references in this book and then the arthurian references are mm-hmm. pretty straightforward um i mean lotto's actual name is lancelot and he's compared to the sun my, very frequently my first actual groan in this book i think is when we learn that lotto's real name is lancelot <laughs> yeah I'm like oh my god here well we go. not only is his name lancelot but the teenage girl that he has this he impregnates r- right well at the time he doesn't realize he impregnates yeah. her but the the teenage girl that he has this brief affair with that basically kicks off his whole um life essentially because it, it what it's what causes him to go to boarding school which allows him to get interested in acting and then it all rolls downhill from there her name is guinevere um or it's, it's gwendolyn actually or it's a it's Gwenny it's or Gwendolyn. Close enough to sure, Guinevere I, yeah. that it feels very and then on top of that, they end up having a kid together, which Lotto never knows about in his life. He dies before he is ever able to find out that that's the case. And Matilde and ends up sleeping with Lotto's illegitimate son, mm-hmm. which if you and I had to look this up to remind myself of this, but uh, if you know anything about Arthurian legend, Sir Galahad was Lancelot's illegitimate son, not by Guinevere, but by an- another woman. And Galahad is often described as being the the pure, the pure one, um, the pure knight in all of these stories. And so here we have this illegitimate son who is who's also clearly an Oedipus. Right. Stand in. Yeah. Just a, a lot of different references. So, so what did you, so what did you make of that? I, like, I, that stuff felt a little overbearing to me. What, I, what, how did it, in total, how did it feel to you? How, the, just the, the weight of so many allusions and references and allegories. Okay. So the yeah. references, I essentially just started to ignore them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I'm not familiar enough with Shakespeare. So I, I didn't really see a lot of those in there, but, the the obvious Greek and medieval mythology, I just didn't really pay attention to because I don't think that it served the basic thrust of what this novel was trying to be about. I think that that to me, those are the biggest flaws that she got really excited about. OK, I'm going to write a, a modern day Greek tragedy, Fates and Furies. Mm-hmm. And then she just from there allowed that to get away from her where she's inserting these references that don't really contribute anything except as a sly wink to the people who are going to immediately understand them. But as a person who didn't immediately understand a lot of them, I knew enough to know that there was a reference going on and that's yeah. the worst. <laughs> I think that's exactly where I was. And that's, yeah. I, I'm willing to, I suspect, you know, I'm, I'll, I'm going to give this book the benefit of the doubt in that respect because that stuff is so forward and so overt that it's impossible for me to imagine that it is simply the result of Lauren Groff, the author, um, trying to be 
sly and failing, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's quite intentional that this book is intended to be larger than life. The name, I mean, right from the beginning, it's called Fates and Furies. And then you turn to the first page and the first sort of book of the two books is called Fates. And I mean, how much more, um, kind of, uh, portentous can you get than to open a book and have it begin with the word fates in block letter, right? I mean, it's, uh, I am sure that there is something that there is a, a strong intentionality there. I'm just not entire. I just don't quite know where to land with it. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that stuff. And I think that, you know, to what you were saying earlier, I do think the single biggest, um, thing that makes me reconsider my position on this book a little bit is to actually literally put the two books in it into different buckets in my brain and truly imagine them as different genres, the sort of the sort of warring um, positions that Phoebe Delmar was was putting forth. You know, I think that that actually that in retrospect improves my opinion of this book a lot, because I, as I was wrapping up the book, I was really getting crushed under the weight of Mathilde and Charlie and Mathilde's uncle and Antoinette by way of Sally and Rachel. And I mean, even other characters in some minor way, including the sort of the um, the uh, private investigator as the vessel of Matilda's research, you know, all of these characters essentially being total masterminds. And, you know, like I I think by the end and then on top of that, um, you learn about Land, Roland, you know, uh, uh, Lancelot's son, a lot of son, um, just the, the sort of. And I think Roland is also conver- a reference to. I'm, sh- I'm sure it is another. I think it's a French. Mm, that sounds familiar. Myth, Song of Roland, or something. Yeah, yeah. So the the sort of to me the the weight of all of those um, intentional uh, sort of conspiracies or or um, leverage combined with the incredible uh, sort of coincidence or um, unknowing sort of convergences combined. In this like abs, this just outrageous uh, fever fever pitch of sort of perfect story threading in a way that I think I I was really abrasive to me. But when I when I sort of rethink about the story as more of I guess a fable or um, some some kind of uh, modern telling of a grand myth, I guess I can I. It does feel different in my mind, right? I mean, when you look at something like the actual Oedipus story, like those stories are predicated on this sense of of sort of um, almost divine, uh, divinely foretold tragedy and and kind of inescapable um, paths set down before. You know, so I mean, that 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 kind of that makes it work better in my mind. But I, I have to, I do, you know, it, as I was reading it, that stuff was hard for me. It just felt so constructed. The thing that I like about it, though, again, to go back to this point of Lotto being this blissfully unaware human mm-hmm. being is that you spend 200 or so pages reading about his pretty basic existence where and then in Matilde's chapter, it's just revealed that all these machinations are happening and Lotto was just completely unknowing about what his mother was doing, what his childhood friend was doing, what his wife was doing. Mm -hmm. The depth of his ignorance. Don't you think it's a little weird that that Matilde had so many phone conversations with Antoinette like, and sent her all of these letters 
And no, you don't think that's weird? No, do you, you know, he do never I think... check, he never checked the mail. Like, no, I, I, I think the character, okay, maybe a criticism that you could front is that no one is that just unaware Liter- of literally oblivious, right? But I get the impression that Lotto wanted to stay ignorant of many of these things. He has this relationship with a woman for at least 20 years, right? I think they're in their 40s when he dies. And during all of that time, he never seemed to press her very strongly about any information of her past or her general goings-ons and seemed perfectly content to allow her to control their lives and never question anything that she was doing. And in that way, I find the second part of the book so just mind-exploding because you've been in the mindset of this person who just, again, is so used to being the favored person that they accept everything without question and then you get into that mindset and then everything else is revealed to you in the second half and i think that is a really masterful way to demonstrate human ignorance and our complacency and not wanting to know all of the horrible things that are happening around us and the the questionable things that people we care about are are doing and lotto is a person who is privileged enough to not to get away with with doing that and Matilda and everyone else is not so I, are not I I I agree and that is why my favorite part of the book was the con- sort of the last third of um of Lotto's story leading to Matilda's story because I you know I thought that when Lancelot for instance when he when Lotto was giving that speech in San Francisco or in Silicon Valley or whatever and his kind of well-meaning but extremely oblivious and ill-conceived ideas about you know what what is truly valuable and you know what men and women provide that he presents as being very charitable to women but in reality is 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 actually extremely um condescending that to me felt honest i mean i've seen that that opinion um i mean that, that that's an opinion that's that is easy for people to talk themselves into given their station in life. And I, that's a kind of obliviousness that is kind of uh, part of a worldview that I think I was, I was glad to see that character portrayed in that way because it felt like the book was skirting the issue for so long uh, of, of just coming, of saying this guy like clearly isn't, he, he almost just um, that, that was, that worked so well for me. And I was really glad to see, okay, this is the sort of accumulation of this way of walking through life. Right. And it's put out to the fore and like, Oh, it's, you know, it took a while, but it's, it's now kind of this unvarnished person picture of this person. Well, it was harder for me to swallow. And I know this sounds stupid and, and petty, but was literally just like his mother couldn't just like, I, I just, the, what? all of the tiny little things that over the course of decades, no one could have punched through. Like it doesn't, it doesn't seem to me that with all of the things that were going on between Rachel and Sally and Antoinette and Matilde, that absolutely none of those things 
whatever punch through. That because that doesn't feel like him being an oblivious man who's like anointed. That just feels like stretching the the bounds of credulity to me. And that that was hard for me to swallow. Are you talking about how in the end it's revealed that Lotto's mother basically had a drawer full of evidence against Mathilde? No, I just mean that there that you know, for so long we believe that his mother simply cut off contact and didn't want to see them. Um, but then we learned that that Lotto talked with her on video chat every single week. We learned that she was that she was You con- learned that in Lotto's section. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's never okay. a secret. Yeah. No, you're right. That's that's true. But the thing that you do learn is that she wanted to visit she wanted to see Lotto and was prevented by Matilde again and again and again and again again. And Matilde would have these incredibly convoluted reasons why they couldn't but go again, and see Antoinette. And I and the it's just that stuff wore a little bit thin for me. Like, I don't know. The, again, it's a demonstration of his complete passivity. No, I, I understand. Sure. But I just don't buy it. You know, I I have to completely disagree. I mean, here's a man who, again, allows who has essentially allowed every woman in his life to dictate where his life goes. And he not all the women he had tons of sex with. But he doesn't care when. about those women. He cares about the women who he sees as these pure vessels for him to throw his creative energy through. I mean, he replaces his mother with Mathilde, which is why I think it's so interesting that he feels incredibly betrayed when he eventually finds out that Mathilde was not, that he was not the first person Mathilde sleeps with, ha- slept mm-hmm. with. You know, he he learns yeah, that Mathilde know, had been carrying on. But see, again, those are big things. Like his, sure, but that's let not me... the tiny little just like every single day for decades, there's never a slip. That's the part that's hard for me to swallow. But again, you a couple of minutes ago just got finished talking about how you can accept this book as being a, a fable. Yeah. And yeah. I guess I just have to get. I just have to get over it. I, I, I com- and even in real life, I can completely buy something like this happening because I, I don't think that Lotto very strongly wants to see his mother to begin with, and so he's just completely happy to allow the status quo to continue for as long as it does because to him, it doesn't matter, and and I think that speaks to the kind of person that he actually is, which, again, to me, it's not shocking that Matilda is able to have a secret abortion, that Matilda does... No, I, I buy that. I okay. I buy that. But... That's one... But that's an incident, you know? Like, any... I... That's just different than sustaining that kind of, like, incredibly convenient um, and very specific... Like, very specifically controlled, con- like, information flow for so long without a single slip ever when Charlie can just march in and be like, like make one offhanded comment and then instantly throw Lotto's entire thing off whack. Like there was never a single thing in the decades they were together that ever made him suspicious when he's clearly able to be made suspicious out of the drop of a hat that, that it just doesn't quite add up to me. And I, I don't want to keep belaboring it because I've sort of, I've said it right. Like that's the thing that I don't need to say it again and again and again, like that, that was hard for me to swallow, but you're right. It is. It does feel like more of a larger than life sort of allegory, and I, I, you know, I can basically buy that. But it did make the reading of the book sort of laborious at times for me. Does that seem fair? No, <laughs> I just don't agree with 
Yeah, but all right. Well, I think your points are fair, even if I don't agree with all of them. But okay. I guess that's just how it has to go. Okay, fine. I so. think it's fair. <laughs> you don't have to begrudgingly agree. It's okay. Um, well, how do you, what do you make of this book? This is to completely switch gears. What do you make of this book in light of the fact that we are getting married in two weeks? Is that <laughs> was that like did that feed into your choice of this book at all? Or, or it is definitely that- fed into my original decision to read it oh really months okay. ago Interesting. Yeah. because the the reviews for this book pitched it as a book about marriage but unlike the kind of stereotypical book about marriage where it's an unhappy one and somebody is going to have an affair with another person and that that is the at least the stereotype of how mm-hmm. these kind of domestic novels go someone is I, unhappy yeah, i was shocked and surprised pleased that these characters did not have affairs because mm-hmm. that is just that is just what happens in books in modern books especially like since lotto is set up to be yeah. this crazy yeah. lothario yeah Although that was kind of ridiculous in the other direction a little bit but anyway he is the special child I know. everything that happens is just supposed to support the fact I know, that i know i get it i get i mean i get the point of the book okay like, give me a break here like i'm not disagreeing i'm like don't please don't confuse my reservations with like missing the point of what the book is. Like mm-hmm. I understand the point of the book. I think you're just ha- having reservations about real people though. Would You think the, you think these this is what real people are like? I I definitely think that you there don't think are these are like exaggerated extreme versions of real people. Not not Matil, not anything that happens in the fury section obviously. Um and I I think the book never presents anything in in that part as meant to be realistic but everything that happens to lotto i completely buy there are men who are just like that and i having reservations about that is just having reservations about the fact that certain men can essentially get away with being like that and i think that's completely valid to have reservations about how our society is set up but i i don't think it's fair to criticize the book for honestly portraying a certain kind of person and i guess having never been on the other end of it um i've certainly never had any of the experiences lotto had so so i guess i (laughs) I mean neither have i but um i mean i've had the experience obviously of benefiting from male privilege generally but the specific experiences being described in the book are definitely outside of my experience so i suppose i have to just take it take you at your word for that i i fully admit that i'm might be overreaching with that characterization. But again, to me, reading the lotto sections, there's definitely something that I identified as honest and true about mm-hmm. how effortlessly some men appear to go through life right. in, for inexplicable sure. reasons. But anyway, you asked me about how I, f- how mm-hmm. I feel about this book as far as marriage goes. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, I, I don't think that you have this crazy past where you may or may not have murdered your younger child that I am completely unaware of. So so, so the interesting thing about you saying that is that you're already putting me into the Matilda role to begin with. Oh. That's <laughs> well, that's the know. one... That's the the relationship where I think... If you're comparing this book to an actual relationship, mm-hmm. the person who is actively doing the comparing is always going to put themselves 
in the Lotto role sure, because right. Lotto is the one who is clueless. Right. And what this book makes you think- And just in fiction generally, the character who is the audience surrogate is usually the less Machiavellian character. Right. And I'm not comparing you to Matilde because I think that I'm more like Lotto and you're like more like Matilde. That's just, I think, the default. Sure. And you're if just you, speaking to the fear of marriage generally right. that the book- like if this were reverse, you right. would you would also sure. compare me to Matilde. I mean, I, yeah, I guess. Uh, I mean, so you the, you wouldn't? No, I just mean I'd never. I didn't think about it in those literal terms. I guess. So I I mean, you're, I guess you're probably right, but it just I hadn't. I guess I was more thinking: Does this book make you? What does this book make you think about the institution of marriage? Like, does this make you sort of more skeptical or less skeptical of it? I thought I I was interested to see that. In the acknowledgments at the end of the book, Lauren Groff, the author, describes herself as someone who is skeptical of marriage and still is despite the good fortune she's had of it. And that seemed to me a real hedge of a position that I, I feel like I I encounter a lot of people who talk about how skeptical they are of the institution of marriage, but get married anyway. Um, and I'm I'm not sure what to make of that, I guess. Um, like this is a, this is, um, you know, it's. I don't know. I don't. I guess I don't really have a point. <laughs> I just thought that was an interesting acknowledge. I thought that was an interesting thing for her to put in the acknowledgments, to describe herself in that way, as being as being a marriage skeptic who is married and has a happy marriage, who then who wrote a book about what is essentially a completely successful marriage, um, in in its output, you know, uh, but only is so because of a deep, um. Uh, you know, sort of vein of withholding or dishonesty that runs through it. I mean, I, dishonesty feels wrong because mm-hmm. again, it's like subterfuge. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, subterfuge in the service of uh, actual love. I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way to look at how relationships, especially long-lasting relationships, work, where one person essentially has to keep the horrors of reality hidden from the other person and in some cases to the detriment of of both people um and because in in the end matilde keeping certain secrets from lotto most importantly her relationship with ariel is what leads to their break and then it doesn't cause his death but it it causes his death to be that much more frustrating and hurtful to her right because he dies before she ever has a chance to explain anything about herself and so she so i suppose in that sense the her well-meaning subterfuge is kind of a double-edged sword right because had had they entered into their relationship with those things on the table, um, I mean, for all we know, it could have made him just, you know, given who Lotto is, maybe it would have made him not, not consider her a worthwhile life partner to begin with. Um, but also, had they ended up together, it would have prevented this sort of sabotage from mm-hmm. happening. So it's, you know, who knows? It's impossible to know. Yeah. So the fact that. In the end, all of her, all of Matilde's attempts to cloud certain parts of her life from Lotto 
ended up not really paying off in the way that she wanted to makes me think that this book isn't entirely skeptical of, of how marriage and relationships can work and it doesn't make me worried about my own marriage <laughs> that's good <laughs> thankfully because yeah. i i think what this book is positing is that relationships are successful only when both people are active participants and are not trying to be opaque about the the bad aspects of themselves mm-hmm. it, um it, it's when we lie to our partners because because we're convinced that lying will help our partners but really it's a selfish desire to hide the bad parts of ourselves that we're afraid the people who we love will not be able to accept that's when relationships deteriorate and i think that the fact that this book is is very frank with that it it just feels like a very mature take on relationships and it, it's a it's really interesting to read a book like this again where both people very clearly love each other and they seem to have had a mostly good relationship but there's this core flaw to it because they both were not able to be honest with each other and i think both people are guilty of not being Mm-hmm. honest uh, matilda for obvious reasons and then lancelot for just not caring enough to demand honesty both from like not being able to be honest with himself that he is intentionally being ignorant of these right. things and then not forcing matilda to be honest with him so that's an interesting take because i think one could and i'm not prepared to sort of wholeheartedly make this case because i don't i don't actually know how i, how I feel about it but i think one could make the case that the book is actually suggesting that to some extent these subterfuges and these uh these uh withholding uh sort of stratagems are actually comp- are actually components to a successful marriage you know i think that there's a there is a potential reading of this book that is that those things if undertaken in with a generous spirit and with the correct intentions can actually be, um, you know, can, can be better, more good than bad, I suppose. And again, I don't know if if, if I'm actually prepared to sort of, um, put forth that argument to any, with any degree of conviction, but it, it feels as though that is a plausible reading of the book. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know if it's the better reading. Some, um, it's, it's definitely the it's definitely the more um, uh, neurotic reading, right? Because it's <laughs> someone about to launch into marriage. Like I, you know, that is not the one that I would like to read from it. So, mm-hmm. But, but I think you could. I think it would be possible. I think there are probably are marriages where that is closer to the truth and has been successful. Mm-hmm. I guess is, that's more what I'm saying. Is maybe not that the the book is making a case that that is the that should be a goal for people generally. But I suspect there are marriages that are lopsided in this way that nonetheless are successful because the people involved have learned to internalize certain mm-hmm. contradictions. And I, th- I think that is also a relatively mature thing, even though it's different than the than the, the observation you were making. Yeah. 
something that just occurred to me as well that maybe this book is skeptical of whether or not two people are even capable of being as honest with each other. I, I think I think that's part of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I perhaps naively don't want to believe is true. <laughs> we'll see what happens in 20 years. That's thanks, the other- Thanks for joining us for the uh, Our... couples counseling edition of the Seattle <laughs> Book Club. Uh, yeah. uh, maybe in 20 years or so. That's the other <laughs> thing. Idol Book Club episode 400. Right. And... <laughs> these, two, these two people are 21 when they get together. Yeah are essentially children right. and are with each other for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So, well, I think that that's, I think that's actually part of it. I think that I, my suspicion would be that people who get the younger you get married, the more you sort of learn how to create those versions of yourself in concert, you know, mm-hmm. whereas I think when you get married at an older age, when you're already sort of a fully formed adult, the onus is on you right. to find your, someone who already has de- already developed in the same way right. that you did so mm-hmm. that you can be compatible. Yeah. But I but I know multiple couples who have been together since they were essentially teenagers. And it does feel that in those cases, those are the sort of the trees whose roots intertwined before they were finished growing. And so now they are have sort of all the same mannerisms and like have learned how to just live together and in that way. Mm-hmm. And I think this book is a little this d- depicting characters who are a little closer to that and then making the additional observation that really deep down each of these person people still has their own core that does not you know that that remains totally true deep within you know and it is learning how to kind of wrap that core with a some kind of like arrangement that lets them mesh together that Mm -hmm. is that is that makes for the successful marriage it's like when you it's an organ transplant where your body has to accept yeah (laughs) the organ that's what marriage is like and then decades later it's as though it was always meant to be there yeah yeah so i guess my final thing on marriage i want to read oh sure something from the book that i I just liked it's on 388 in Uh the hardcover edition uh, so it was mathematical marriage, not as one might expect additional. It was exponential. And then I'm going to skip a couple of lines to the bottom of the page. Now they thanked everyone and laughed and papers were signed and congratulations offered and all stood for a moment and willing to leave this genteel living room where there was such a softness. The newlyweds thanked everyone again shyly and went out the door into the cool morning. They laughed rosy in. They'd come integers out. They came squared. And I just think that's a nice way of thinking about yeah, what that is nice. Although integers that are squared are still integers, so <laughs> I'm not really sure what that means. Well, Lauren Graf might know a lot about Greek mythology, but maybe she doesn't know <laughs> that much about math. Yeah, who knows? Um, there is something actually I wanted to read that's maybe a little bit less. I think is less hopeful and optimistic than the one you read, but I think it's sort of we a, should have ended on mine then. Well, you should have, but I didn't realize you were gonna. I didn't realize we were in these sort of. Pick a quote to sum up the book section, but that's fine. Um, because I think that the, these two books, these two quotations do speak to core themes of the novel. Um, this is one that, that I thought was a, was, was sort of clever and telling. Uh, this is, this is Matilde reflecting when she watches, uh, a little child struggle in the snow and then her mother sternly watching her struggle for a while before she comes out and then 
plays with her and goes back in and gives her a hot cup of milk. And Matilda doesn't quite know what to make of this because it differs so much to her own experience of of uh, childhood. Or and in I, some ways it doesn't, in some ways it doesn't. I think at this point you should also set up the fact that this is before Matilda has met Lotto, right? This is when she's in Milwaukee with Ariel. Okay, okay. So yeah. she's still very young and hasn't had any real mm-hmm. compassion yet in her okay, life. That's that's a fair point. So she says, Matilda says on page 354 in the hardcover edition, It occurred to her then that life was conical in shape, the past broadening beyond the sharp point of the lived moment. The more life you had, the more the base expanded, so that the wounds and treasons that were nearly imperceptible when they happened stretched like tiny dots on a balloon slowly blowing up. A speck on the slender child grows into a gross deformity in the adult, inescapable, ragged at the edges. And the thing I really liked about that that metaphor was that it forced me to... uh, (laughs) Unlike the mathematical thing, which, as I thought about it, made less sense to me, although the <laughs> overall point, obviously, mm-hmm. I understand. This, uh, this sort of geometrical uh, metaphor was one that, as I thought more about it, became more interesting when I actually started trying to imagine, okay, life is a cone. In which direction does it grow, right? Does it grow? I guess it grows from the way it's being presented. The tip is not your birth. The base is your birth. And the tip grows up from that as the radius of the base expands. And I sort of just started thinking about this. And I started thinking about the idea of the sort of blot on the base growing up and how what that also is suggesting is that the totality of life's experiences uh, create this like ever weightier, heavier, heavier expanding base that you're dragging along with the tip, which is fixed a fixed point always like the tip, which in this metaphor represents the current moment in your life at any time is always infinitely small. It's always um, the furthest point with the least context for it. And then behind you, you're dragging this like, it's like an iceberg. It's like an iceberg that is constantly getting bigger underwater. It's Mm -hmm. like an iceberg that is constantly growing downwards. If, if you're going to use that metaphor and I, and I, it's kind of a sad idea really because it, it, I don't think that's sad, though. It doesn't have to be. In this in this particular evocation of the metaphor, it is kind of sad because the thing that, sh- that Groff is specifically mentioning are these childhood experiences, these blots that get larger and larger and sort of poison your your adulthood. Um, and that, that that is kind of sad, but it doesn't have to be entirely sad. Once mm-hmm. you sort of think through – the thing I liked about the metaphor is that it, it does, I think, hold up to – further consideration and trying to literalize it, not literalize it, but trying to sort of extrapolate out from this like simple premise she puts forth. I think it does hold up as you consider more of how life works and how, how memory works. And I, it can, those, those expanding blots can be good memories as well, certainly. Mm -hmm. So I think you can read it optimistically because even if it's something that is not actually uh, obtainable, if it is, Maybe actually impossible for two people to be that aware of one another because it's an awareness of another person and then also yourself. It's awareness of their past, right? Right. In, in, and then in, also yeah. an awareness of your 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 personal demons, essentially. M- maybe that is an impossible thing for human beings to achieve. But I take that as an optimistic view because it's something that people just should strive for. And maybe accept that you could maybe say strive to find solidarity in the striving, right? Like Mm -hmm. if if you and your, I mean, like the failure is the optimism 
the fact that you know something like this is ultimately doomed, but you are willing to go on this endeavor with another human being is kind of the beauty of it, I think. And and to me, that is what is positive about this outlook on life. All so right. I hope Lauren Groff listens to this and becomes less skeptical <laughs> of... Because I don't think it's skeptic- skepticism. I think it's just the sad but also hopeful reality of human existence. Well, I hate to to break it to you, but I think it's unlikely Lauren Groff is going to hear this. Well, maybe Obama will listen to it. Maybe that. Obama. That's true. Maybe. Yeah. If not Lauren Groff, at least Barack Obama, <laughs> President Barack Obama. He loves this, this book. Podcast. Yeah, it's true. God, what does that say about his marriage? I don't really know. I mean, they for ha- for being such a high-profile couple, Barack and Michelle Obama seem to have one of the more stable and healthy See, this is also why I'm positive about this book because if if they have a good marriage and Obama likes this book But you like this book. Yeah, so, so we'll have a good marriage. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if so, so all, facto. Yeah, that, well, <laughs> solved. Sweet. All right. So, before we wrap up, uh we do have uh some reader mail and this is a an email that I think is worth reading because we didn't touch on this at all, but I think it's a I think it's a valid observation. So this is from Michael Keating. He writes, "Hello, uh, I've been a listener to, listener to Idle Thumbs for a few years, but I missed the first run of the Idle Book Club. Thank you for bringing it back. On to Fates and Furies. I enjoyed the book, but there was a recurring issue that bothered me. Lotto and Matilde's marriage spans 24 years, and we get insight into this marriage throughout that entire time frame. However, no matter the year, the dialogue felt very much present day 2015. During the post collegiate parties Lotto and Matilde threw in the early 90s." Characters say things like global warming, schmobile swarming, and Sting is his spirit animal. In the early 2000s, Matilde responds to a negative review Lotto's play received by saying the critic can, quote, eat a bowl of dicks. I feel like celebrity is my spirit animal and eat a bowl of dicks are sayings that popped up in the past few years, not the early 90s or 2000s. Um, Is this something you two picked up on? Do you think it's better than the alternative, writing dated slang in the dialogue to emphasize what year it was? I guess Trolley saying eat my shorts at one of those 90s parties would have (laughs) felt too forced. Thanks again. I'm looking forward to reading along this year. Mike. I I did get that sense a little. And I think that Lauren Groff probably made the right decision to not bother with attempting period appropriate language because the difference between the way people talked in the 90s versus the way people talked in the 2000s is probably so slight that... Doesn't that make the choice less forgivable if it's such a slight difference and yet... Things like but Blank is My Spirit Animal, which feels like such a product of modern social media culture, is doesn't that seem like less forgivable? If I think she people were saying that when I was in middle school. I don't know. I just don't know what tweaks you could you could realistically well, expect someone to. Well, you could not include to... slang that feels like it's born out of modern day Twitter yeah. and Facebook. I think I think that's a that's a that's a totally fair observation personally. So a book that I read pretty recently after I finished Fates and Furies was called A Little Life, which also also came out in 2015. And that book does take place over 40 to 50 years. And throughout the book, it feels like it's all happening in 2015, except that if you pay attention, you'll notice that in some of the earlier sections, people don't talk as much about having cell phones and that that's really the only clue that that time is mm-hmm. actually progressing and that people aren't weirdly stuck in this one, the same yeah. time period for 50 plus years and 
I, I when I was reading that book, it, it's just a, so much more egregious than anything that happens in Fates and Furies, which makes me retroactively more forgiving of Fates and Furies. <laughs> that, that's totally fair. Um, but the thing that it made me notice, because it's a, a much more overt example of that, is that I don't know, again, if this necessarily matters that the book has to explicitly indicate i i think the the time when it matters is when it becomes uh intrusive on your reading experience and i yeah. think that's what the reader's describing and i think that that's that's fair if that's the experience you had um the book by the way that sarah mentioned is a little life by hanya yanagahara yes it's it's huge i saw you reading it yeah it's it's, <laughs> it's 800 or 900 pages a and, big life and a big book about a little i think life. that's that's part of the I know, joke i'm sure that's the joke um I I wanted to pick that for the book club, but the <laughs> length and then oh my god, is it d- depressing? Yeah. Well, and the fact that um this podcast was previously killed by, by Wolf a Hall. huge book, which was Wolf Hall, which is an amazing book, and you should definitely read Wolf Hall if you have if you think you have any interest in Tudor era uh, political intrigue because it's great. So uh, that's our take on Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff. As you can tell, we were split on the book, although. I would like to think that at least one of us uh, modulated his opinion a little bit. Um, we uh, next month are going to be reading Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. Um, Kazuo Ishiguro is, I think, most famously the author of The Remains of the Day. And that is a book that I dearly love. I, I love The Remains of the Day. I think it's a really incredible piece of fiction. Um, I it is actually the only book I've read by this author, which is one of the reasons I suggested reading Never Let Me Go. I have not read this book. I don't know. Do you have any do you have any thoughts on on this pick at all? I, I've also not read a lot of his novels. You read The Buried Giant. The Buried Giant, his most recent novel. Right. Yeah. Um, and generally enjoyed that book, although it didn't seem like that was one of his more successful novels. It this most recent one for sure, but Never Let Me Go and Remains of the Day seem to be more widely discussed as groundbreaking. Not mm-hmm. groundbreaking, but exceptional. This isn't this is I wouldn't say this is a reason we picked it, but something that I thought was kind of a nice thing was that it has also been made into a movie and we may watch that movie before recording the episode to sort of compare and contrast how we think the subject matter was treated, because I think that's often a pretty interesting uh, source of discussion. We might also watch Michael Bay's movie The Island. Is that what? What? Why? It has. <laughs> do you do you not know anything about what Never Let Me Go? I know that Wikipedia describes Never Let Me Go as a 2005 dystopian science fiction novel by Japanese-born British author Kazuo Ishiguro. So, that's so you don't about you it. don't know anything I, about I don't the know plot anything about it, and okay. I prefer to keep it that way. All right, I um, I and obviously you don't know anything about. Michael Bay's classic film, The Island, or else I that would have. Really I do no. Okay, well, I bet there's an island in it. Yeah. All right. We'll have to watch that too. Okay. So uh, that is for March. Never let me go by Kazuo Ishiguro. It is uh, unlike Fates and Furies. It's been out for quite a while, so it should be available in pretty much any format you want: hardcover, paperback, ebook, audiobook, um, easy. So, um, yeah. Thank you for uh, thank you for listening to the Idle Book Club as we relaunch this podcast. Hopefully, we can find an audience. Um, obviously, we're gonna have to kind of start over building it up since we there was such a big gap. If you do enjoy this discussion, uh, tell a friend. It's a fun thing to kind of have a shared experience that where everyone's reading along with a book. 
uh, each month. You can it's you have something to talk about. You can talk about it with your own friends who might be reading if they're following along or on our forums. If you go to idlethumbs.net and click the forums link, we have a sub forum for this podcast, as with all of the podcasts on our network. And each book and month has its own discussion thread that we put up. Um, I will put it up today, in fact, so uh, people can start discussing the book immediately without having to wait for us. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Thank you. One way to enjoy next month's pick is as an audiobook from Audible. Audible is the Internet's largest provider of audiobooks. They have hundreds of thousands of books on there. It's crazy. If you go to audibletrial.com slash idlebookclub, you can get a trial month, a free month of Audible membership, as well as a free audiobook that you can keep no matter what you end up doing with your membership. That's audibletrial.com slash idlebookclub. They have uh, Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro on there. In fact, they have it on there with two different narrators that you can choose from. That is audibletrial.com slash idlebookclub. See you next month. Could you say a few sentences? Uh, I'm saying a few sentences at a normal speaking volume. I'm hourly saying sentences normally. <laughs> Thank you.